Bible's got you tied in knots If you're burdened with religious thoughts Come grab a drink and join the choir It's Heretic Happy Hour Oh, 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 yes! Oh, yes! Thank you, God. It's time for another Heretic Happy Hour podcast, friends, and you are in the right place. Trust me. My name is Keith Giles. Uh, I'm the author of several books, including Jesus Undefeated, um, something about hell. And uh, I'm joined by several other amazing co-hosts that uh, I'm going to allow them to introduce themselves. And we are in the middle of an amazing series called About the Sermon on the Mount, Speaking Truth to Power, Examining the Teachings of Jesus. And um, so, yeah. Hey, guys, introduce yourselves and let them know who you are. Hey, everyone. I'm Katie Valentine. I am the author of a book, but Again, like last week, I think only six people have read it, maybe seven since then. So instead, I'm going to tell you that I'm also the creator of a CD where I get to play my harp, and that's really fun. So I want to share that with you too, harp solo and chakra grounding meditation. You can see all my woo-woo at once. (laughs) Hey, everybody. I'm Derek Day. I'm the author of Deconstructing Religion. I'm a former pastor, and I am an asshole for hire. That, that's that's why we brought you on, Derek. We needed an asshole. I one wasn't enough. Um, so that makes me the other asshole, uh, Matt DeStefano, author of Heretic and uh, like five other books. Two don't count because they're on whip and stock, and my producer's not going to like it. Yeah, there you go. If I mention them, but uh, excited to be here again. And that brings us to the Heretic Happy Hour Hotline. 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 We have one of those. Hotline. Yeah, you damn right. Damn skippy. (laughs) And in case you want to know, if you're a nosy bastard like me, that number is 240-343-7379. Once again, 240-343-7379. Exercise finger dexterity and let your voice be heard. So we have two, not one, but two texts this week. Roll text. The first one is from someone anonymous. It says, hey, guys, I just wanted to say that I absolutely love what you do. I'm 19 and was raised in evangelical church my whole life. I experienced a major face crisis during my first year in college, and I stumbled across your podcast, and it has been wonderful to listen to you guys. I've read Keith's Jesus Unbound and Matthew's Heretic, and they have helped me to see the true, loving, and compassionate Jesus. And I'm forever grateful for you guys. Oh, so that's, that's great. Yeah. That's so nice. Yeah. I don't know about that first book, but that second one sounds good. <laughs> well, I, it just makes me happy to know we're corrupting the youth of America like oh, that. God, you know? I know. Oh. Helping people to see the true, loving, compassionate Jesus. I mean. How dare we? How dare I, we? I yeah. think I insta- instigated a few faith crises for people in their first year in college. So I'm sorry for any <laughs> role I've ever played for that for anyone else. But faith crises are a good thing. They bring us to new new realities, to new learning. Yeah, I'm initiating faith crises on a daily basis. That's right. Yes, you are. I see your Facebook, Derek. I see you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's the the first one. Do you want me to roll text on the second one, or do you want to deal with this first one first? I I think we're good. Just thank you for for listening. Thank you for reading, and appreciate it. And yeah, yeah, reach out anytime you need it if you have uh, anything to talk about. The second one says, hey guys, this is Casey from Michigan. We won't hold that against you, Casey. 
<laughs> this is my second time reaching you through the hotline. Anyway, I just listened to your conversation about quantum spirituality, and I have a few questions. Jamal said a few times that we're here to learn something. I'm curious what you think that might be. Are we all meant to learn different things, or is there one thing we're all meant to learn? If the universe bends toward love, is that the one thing? Thanks for the show. Cheers. Yeah. Best question ever. That was good. Well, yes. Yeah, so what yeah. do you guys think? We're all what? here to learn. Diff- we're all here to learn different things. That's right. What do you think those different things are? Yeah. What are some of the things we're here to learn? I think we're all here to learn joy. Like every single person. Joy that in any kind of circumstance, right? Even, even when things are really shitty, when things are really hard. Uh, that's a kind of a spiritual discipline almost to, to be able to learn that. So I think that's one that's personally, I think that's one that's universal, uh, easier for some than for others. But yeah, I think we're like, I think earth is a big learning camp. And when, when I was the heretic of the week, we talked a lot about reincarnation. We're all here to Ooh. have different life lessons. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so, yeah, I, wh- wh- I think Derek, you said, yeah, we're all here to learn different things. And I agree. We all have different, different things that we need to know in this time around on earth, in my heretical opinion. Well, I think there are, there are three basic things, right? You, you, you want to eat, right? We're here to eat. Everybody agree with that? We're here to eat. Yeah, I love eating. I'm for it. You know? Yeah, I do it all the time. I, I, think, I think that we're here to love. I, I think that we're made of love. And so we're, we're here to manifest that love. And finally, we're here to reproduce. Woohoo! <laughs> And so basically everything in, a, along the broad spectrum of things that the different things that there are to learn, basically they fit into one of those three bins. Mm. That's my two cents. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, uh, I don't know. I mean, I agree that I think they're probably all here to learn different things, but I think they're probably some of the main things for me anyway, I guess my, my perspective would be, I think we're here to learn how to love, um, and as you can see, our, and our, look at our world today, we're still really struggling with that one to learn how to love uh, other people uh, that are technically, you know, our brothers and sisters, if we're all descended from the same father. Um, so I think that's one very important lesson we're still working on and struggling with. Um, but, you know, uh, Casey from Michigan, thank you for this text. I, I, you know, as I'm looking at I'm kind of reading over your text here, Casey from Michigan, and you mentioned that it was Jamal on that, on that episode who made the statement that we're here to learn something. And I think if Jamal were here, Casey from Michigan, I think what he would want you to, to recognize is that um, one of the most important things to learn is that you are from Michigan and the Michigan State Wolverines are the greatest football team uh, really in the world, probably in all of time. Heresy. It's just total heresy. Hey, that's not heresy. That's, that's, something, that's something that we agree on. <laughs> yeah, there we, you go. We actually agree on. So yeah. I'm pretty sure if Jamal were here, that was that's something he would really want you to know, Casey. He would want to affirm for you that you're in the right state. And I hope you're going to, to Michigan State because that would make you a Wolverine. And there's no, actually, Michigan State would make you a Spartan. Oh, Spartan. I'm sorry. Come on, see, man. see I'm, how little hey. I know. Yeah, you you really you got to get here. your facts straight to disc. <laughs> I'm sorry, right. old man, child. <laughs> okay, whatever. Well, I think hey. I think it's kind of like um, it's kind of like uh, what Alan Watts talks about how there is no meaning to life. Meaning is we we there's infinite meaning. So it's mm-hmm. like it's like a dance. We can draw all these meanings out of a dance or a song. There doesn't have to be one thing. And 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 when there's one thing to learn or one one meaning we're getting out of it. I think we limit the actual experience of life. And so like the meaning of the dance is the dance itself. 
the uh, what we learn from life is what we're here to learn. I mean, mm -hmm. it's going to be different for everyone, even if there are some common threads through through everyone's experience. I like that. And that would and that'd be my two cents. I like that. That's good. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I'll say this just to add on, you know, something really pointless is that <laughs> I'm not Jamal, but I play him on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, no, Derek, you are so, so much more. You are your own amazing person. And the more people get to know you, the more we're going to see how amazing you really are. So I'm, I'm glad you and Katie are both here because uh, we're so excited to have you guys here to co-host with us. Oh, well, we're Katie, excited Katie to be amazing. here. Derek, we're going we're gonna to have some fun later on on our topic for today. Oh yeah. I've been, yeah, I've been really excited about it. So, well, before we get to that, is it time to get to the heretic of the week? It's the Heretic of the Week. Hi, my name is Ron Stallworth, and I am uh, also known as the Black Clansman. Hi, Hi Ron. Hey, Ron, thank you so much for doing this. This is such an honor. I tell you what, I'm, I'm, I can't even believe this is happening. So thank you so much for being our, our guest on the podcast. My pleasure. So, um, Ron, I guess um, one thing I want to know, I mean, just as a background, if people don't know who you are briefly, you were the first African-American police officer to join, and detective to join the uh, Colorado Springs Police Department. And if I'm not mistaken, you're the first black uh, anyone to join the Ku Klux Klan. So they tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm willing to bet. You, you got a card to prove it, right? I do. Do you still have it? I'm sitting on it right now. <laughs> wow. Holy crap. That's so great. So um, I got. I guess what I would start off asking you, Ron, and, and you can just, you know, we can just go from here. What made you um, respond to this newspaper ad that you saw in 1979, asking for people to join the KKK? Why in the world did you decide to fill that out? Was it a joke? Did you know where this was going to go? I mean, why did you do that? Uh, it was my job. I was an intelligence detective. Uh, it occurred in 1978, October of 78, and uh, I saw the ad, and being an intelligence detective, I wanted to follow up on that ad, and the rest, as they say, is history. Hmm. How long was the total involvement that you had? My investigation was a grand total of seven and a half months of undercover work. And then it continued for probably another two months or so after that. So, um, man, I mean, yeah, this, so the film is amazing. I, honestly, it was, I think, one of the best films I saw. It came out in 2018 and uh, such a great film and an amazing story. And it is one of these things where if you didn't tell me it was a true story, I think I wouldn't believe you. Because it just seems like if you someone tried to invent this story, you would just say, this is too, this is too wild. Um, did you feel that way when you were going through this? I mean, when that phone rang on your desk and someone asked for Ron Stallworth and you found out that it was this person from the KKK responding to your ad, what was going through your mind? Uh, to be honest with you, I said, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've already you've broken that ice and you're, you've endeared yourself to me there. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I, one one of the things that I wanted to ask, I just had to throw this out here. Have you ever met uh, Daryl Davis? Uh, uh, I know who you're talking about. Yep. I think he's a clown, a joke. And wow. no, I have not met him. 
Yeah, because he, you know, he's gone and met with Klansmen and and uh, he's got the robes and all of these things as a little souvenir uh, set up in his home. You know, and I was I was just curious because, uh, you know, your your story really uh, speaks to uh, infiltrating the organization from the standpoint of uh, dismantling it. Whereas, uh, whereas Mr. Davis seems to have been trying to find peace with it. Uh, more power to him. Uh, like I said, I think it's a joke. Uh, it's not my stick, and I don't. Uh, I'm not looking for souvenirs. I hear you, man. <laughs> Scalps, not souvenirs. Right. <laughs> so. Um, I don't want to assume too much because I know sometimes what we read or, or I mean, well, your book is, is by you, but the the, book, the the film, you know, sometimes they take some liberty. So uh, I don't want to assume that it was easy, but was it easy? I mean, if it was, were you surprised to how easy it was to infiltrate uh, the KKK? Well, looking back on everything, it happened uh, quickly and it was easier than one would imagine, surprisingly so. Um Things things unfolded fairly quickly, and there was no plan to the operation or anything. Um, because, as I've said, I just responded to a phone call, and uh, events uh, transpired from there. Hmm. So, how quickly were you speaking with David Duke? That occurred probably a month into the investigation. Wow. So yeah, pretty quickly. Did you get any pushback? Oh, go ahead. So I was going to say I uh, I contacted him because my membership card had not come in the timely fashion that it was supposed to. So I called him to try to find out uh, why. That's how we connected. Even the KKK has bureaucratic... (laughs) <laughs> problems <laughs> what, was was that before or after uh uh david duke ran for the governorship of louisiana no that occurred about two three years after my investigation okay mm. for the first time yeah Just more than once i i remember david duke running for governor when i was in middle school you lived there yeah in louisiana yeah yeah that's where i grew up mm. yeah that's uh, correct i was so, too young to vote obviously i would have voted against it yeah, I hope so. <laughs> so, uh, so Ron, um, I mean, during your investigation, so you were the first um, black police officer and detective at Colorado Springs. That in itself, no, maybe. No, I was I was the first black detective, not police oh. officer. Okay, okay, good. Okay, um, but does that in itself say something? I mean, did you experience any kind of um, racism or or pressure from? Your fellow white uh, detectives? No. That's good. No. Uh, the only pressure I felt, if you want to call it that, was the uh, fact that once I got put in the detective bureau, I had to perform. Uh, when you're the first of anything and you're black, all eyes are on you. And basically, you have to, you have to live up to expectations and exceed. Otherwise, mm-hmm. uh, Otherwise, the word is going to go out that you can't handle the job or you're not up to par and you don't want that to happen because it'll affect uh, others behind you. Right. No doubt. It's a tough thing. I mean, um, 
I've never been a police officer, obviously. Um, but there was a brief time when I was a young man, uh, when I was considering it. And the more I investigated what it was actually like to be a police officer, the more I convinced myself that's probably not something I wanted to do with my life. So uh, my hat's off to you because I think it takes a lot of courage uh, to do that job. It's not an easy job at all. Oh, it was fun. It was it. <laughs> that's good. So, so you'd say for the most part, you had a you had a positive experience um, in the police department. I had a positive experience. Got to understand though that. Policing in the 70s, from the 70s through uh, the 2000s, was a different experience than policing uh, today. Right. I was trying to imagine doing this kind of investigation without the Internet. And it was was incredibly hard for me to imagine that. And you were doing this in 1978. And I'm wondering if that made it easier or, or harder. And I guess maybe that's a silly question we might not be able to know. But yeah, from your, if you have any retrospective on um, what that would be like if you were trying to do it today. Let me answer that in this way. Today, you could not do that investigation because there would have been so many ways. If they had had the internet, Google, they could have done so many things to try to figure out uh, who this voice was over the phone. Mm. Uh, they, could, they could have checked my name and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, I would venture to say that today is almost, I would say it's almost impossible to conduct a similar investigation with the technology that's available today for police officers. Right. I think even then, you know, there was, what, what you did is nothing short of extraordinary because, uh, you know, even, even in the old days, when you talk about, uh, uh, what do you call like secret societies, uh, you know, Masonic organizations or this, that, and the other, uh, there are, are they were there were still procedures by which they vetted candidates and and i'm i'm certain that even when you uh put in your um application if you will uh that there was some degree of vetting that was going on so um the the mere fact that you were able to pull that off uh even even then i i think speaks it speaks volumes to the um i don't know the level of cleverness that you exhibited well, they were they were bragging about how they vetted applicants with a polygraph, a lie detector test. Mm. Um, that, in fact, there's a scene in the uh, movie that uh, touches on that. Uh, they talked about it, but they didn't actually do it. Um, firstly, I think it was just talk. And they did a lot of that during the course of this investigation. But... Uh, Every time I had conversations with uh, one of them on the phone, I was operating in an undercover capacity. I had to maintain the lie. Uh, I had to be convincing in my story. And I had to stay on point so that what I was saying on the phone corresponded to what my uh, alter ego was saying in person. Yeah. Can I can I ask you something real quick? I mean, because um. Something that kind of comes came out in your investigation, it, it seems like it went from sort of like, hey, there's some local guys, you know, who like to drink beer and talk tough. Uh, and it suddenly became uh, you became aware of the fact that there were people high up in the government uh, with connections to uh, the chapter that you were a part of. Or like, I guess maybe you just discovered some of these connections, people high up in government at NORAD, even the governor um, of Colorado and things like that. Um, 
what happened when that happened? Like when you suddenly realized, oh crap, this is way, way deeper and bigger than I expected. Well, I didn't find anyone high up in government. I found out about the history of the Klan in Colorado and was uh, in the 20s and 30s, Colorado state government was dominated dominated by the Klan. The governor in that time period was uh, was a Klan member. Uh, if you ever flew into Stapleton Airport in Denver, uh, Bill Stapleton later became governor, I think in the 30s or 40s. He was a, a Klan member. Wow. And uh, the entire Colorado state government of that time period were all uh, uh, dominated by Klan members. And Colorado wasn't the only state in that time period. Uh, the state of Indiana was very similar. In fact, it was a more notorious Klan state than uh, places like Georgia or Alabama back in the 20s and 30s. So that was uh, very interesting to uncover. The only government, modern government at that time that we uncovered uh, some information was the uh, uh, identification of a NORAD person um, who was part of the group. Um, that led all the way back to the Pentagon. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that, that kind of stuff is very disturbing, I think. Um, I mean, it's bad enough to know that it's sort of um, happening in small towns and, and things like that, but to recognize that it kind of, that these people that are involved with the KKK and who are dedicated to white supremacist uh, ideologies have these sort of levels of power and influence. Now, uh, I think it's not a mystery to a lot of us now that um, even within a lot of police departments, there are people that are members of these organizations. And did you run into anything like that in your experience? No, no. And it's not, it's not alarming. Uh, it wasn't alarming to me about the possibility of people being in government who were involved because institutions like the police department are reflective of the society at large, and the police department uh, reflects the immediate uh, society and culture from which they come from and, and in which they work. So that was not a surprise. Uh, what should be a surprise to people is the fact that we have a government today, uh, United States government, led by a white supremacist in the form of Donald Trump uh, and, and William Barr. And I could go on and on in terms of uh, virtually every Republican in the Senate and uh, uh, on the House side in Congress. Mm -hmm. Now, I have to ask they you this. You, you, you have to have, honestly, and I'm going to say this very, just as bluntly as I can, you have to have like balls of steel. Because honestly, with, with, uh, with the, the level of which you found you, you were able to unearth all of this, these are people high up and people and the higher up you are on the food chain, the more damage that these people can do to you. I mean, were you ever like really, you know, afraid for your life or for the life of your family uh, because of what you uncovered? No, because if they had tried to do anything to my family, I would have killed them. <laughs> Plain and simple. Well, I mean, that, that's, so, that's, that's the answer that I would take, but I mean, dude, what, what you did, I mean, this is just, um, I, I can't even, I can't, and, and listen, I'm going to tell you something. I'm, I'm a pretty stout guy. I'm a pretty ballsy guy. I'm ex-military and, uh, and I've seen and done some stuff, uh, but do that nothing of the order of magnitude of what you've done. 
Well, I appreciate that, but no, I don't worry about that. I was an undercover cop. I had been a trained undercover cop for a few years, and that's what we did. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, my attitude, my philosophy has always been, it's part of my job. You can come at me any way you want, but leave my family out of it. Yep. And it's like I told people in the past uh, two or three years that we've been working with this book and movie, they can come at me, they can say what they want about me. I'm fair game. Leave my wife alone. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, that you said that really just struck a chord with me is that you weren't surprised by you know reflections in, in government uh, because government reflects society today. And I think I... I run into a lot of white people who are surprised that the KKK still exists or that racism still exists. And it's kind of like, it's a surprise that it's a surprise of me towards them. And you, you alluded, you, you, you spoke a little bit about our contemporary government. And I'm just curious if you have thoughts or words or or wisdom for us about the ongoing discussions and debates about police uh, police brutality and maybe what it was like to be a black police officer in a, you know, in this um, largely, you know, it sounded like largely white department that you were in and how you're seeing that today. I think I asked you about four questions in one. So I'll, I'll just give you, <laughs> give you that to, <laughs> to well, run with in any direction that, that you'd like. Well, first of all, when I hear people say that uh, they didn't know that the Klan still existed or uh, expressed naivete towards it, uh, I don't like to call it naivety. I like to call it stupidity and ignorance. Uh, I've had several cops tell me that, people that I worked with back in those days tell me that uh, the Klan doesn't exist anymore and, uh, you know, why am I always talking about it? Uh, the Klan never died. It's never died. Uh, it, it goes into the shadows in periods of time, but then it uh, comes back out of the shadows when conditions are right. We have been ripe for the Klan's reemergence ever since uh, Donald Trump descended on that escalator in 2015 and announced his candidacy by insulting Mexicans as rapists. Mm-hmm. So, um, what was it like uh, being a black man in a predominantly white department? Uh, again, you have the weight of, unfortunately, uh, you have the weight of the race on your shoulders because. You're up front and center, and people are uh, watching you. When you get into positions like that, you have to perform. If you fail to perform, you're not, it's, not gonna, it's not only going to reflect on you, but it's also going to be looked upon in a negative way towards other blacks. In my case, other blacks that would come up after me. So you have a certain amount of pressure that automatically falls on your shoulders at uh, you have to perform, you better perform, or uh, it's not going to be good for anyone else after that. Yeah. Uh, did I feel that pressure? Not really. Because, uh, A, I knew what the job entailed. I knew I could do it, and I uh, very much wanted to do I wanted to be an undercover cop working narcotics. So I didn't feel any pressure at all. And once I got into the position, I performed... Uh, very, very admirably. Can I borrow uh, your interior resilience? Because this sounds amazing. <laughs> That's great. You can take anything away that you want. If it hits you <laughs> you. I, I'll share. I, I, <laughs> Maybe you could yeah. teach us this. So. Well, so. Go ahead, Keith. Go ahead. 
Oh, I'm sorry. I, I just wanted to ask you, I mean, because we only have a little bit of time left, and I'm just curious, you know, you you again, you're mentioning what's going on right now. There is there's a whole lot of talk right now. There's this tension between you know, after the, the, the killing of George Floyd and, uh, now there's a Black Lives Matter and these global protests, and now there's cries for defunding the police. And so you, it seems like are in this unique place. I'm just very curious, you know, how are you stand, how are you reacting to what's going on in the world? Like, what would you want to say? How, how do you feel? Are you sort of conflicted between, well, as a police officer, I feel this way, but as a, a black man, I feel this way, or I'm just curious, what, what's your reaction to what's going on in the world today? I feel no conflict at all. I never have. Uh, I'm proud of uh, my police background. I'm proud of the 32-year career that I had. Uh, I was honored to serve as a police officer in four different states, with Utah being uh, the last place I worked and received uh, my retirement from. But uh, first and foremost in my life, I'm a black man. And whenever I took that badge and gun and uniform off, I became a black man again. Not a black cop, but a black man. So I've always lived in that dual world. Black cops always live in that dual world. Um, and you, you have to learn how to traverse the waters of that world and uh, basically uh, conquer it. Uh, I know of a police officer, a black police officer in Utah who went uh, with a local police department back there, and uh, he couldn't uh, he couldn't handle the pressure of being the only black, and he washed out of the job after a handful of a uh, couple of years, I believe. You can't let the fact that you're the first and the only one at a given time affect you. You have to rise above it, and that's what I did. In terms of uh, the George Floyd incident and others uh, like it, uh, Ahmed Aubrey down in uh, Georgia. Uh, uh, Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta. Mm. That is simply bad policing and roguish cops and the brutality that we've seen and, and have heard talked about is illegal. It's the example of police officers, uh, police officers over over uh, overusing and. Uh, uh, blatantly violating their constitu constitutional authority. Yes. I am 100% against that, and any cop caught doing that, in my opinion, should be uh, arrested and prosecuted. There's no excuse for it. None. That has such power behind it. Thank you for speaking that. I, I want to say something as, as a black man um, that I want to thank you uh, for being the pioneer that you, that you were, being the first detective. In, uh, in Colorado Springs. And, and not only that, I understand what you said about the pressure of having to perform and being the first in, in, a, um, in an area. Um, but from where I sit, man, you are an American hero. I mean, when, when, I, when, I think of, when I think of heroes, people who go out and they do above and beyond to do something that makes society better, to make humanity better, do you nailed it? Yeah. Well, I appreciate that, but I've never, I've been called that uh, over the past three years, I've been called that, and it always makes me uncomfortable because I don't see it as that. Uh, I was just a cop who had a job to do, and I did it to the best of my ability, and it had an interesting outcome. Uh, 
I am proud of the fact that I made a fool out of David Duke and uh, the theory of uh, the, ma- the theory of the master race and white supremacists in general. I'm very proud of that fact. I get a kick out of it all the time. Nice. Uh, but I don't see I don't see any heroism in terms of what I did. It was just doing my job. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the the greatest heroes do it without fanfare, and and, and you know, I wish that you could see my picture, but I, I salute you, sir. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. What made you decide to write the book? And have have there been any threats um, after after the publication of the book or the movie towards you? Uh, the latter part of your question, I'll take first. There have uh, not been any threats. Um, I've gotten into uh, discussions, I'll call them discussions rather than arguments, with some of my police colleagues who take offense to the fact that I have negative things to say about the police, the policing of today, uh, and talk a little bit about it in my book. I don't, uh, I'm not concerned about what people think about me. It's my opinion. It's based on uh, experience. It's based on uh, my empirical experience as both a black man and a, and a uh, active cop for 32 years. Uh, everyone's experience has been different, and they have they're entitled to have their own and to write their own book and tell their story. Um, but I told mine. What made me write it? I just pulled out a p- pad and paper one day, a pad and pen one day, and decided uh, I'm going to document this story. And uh, fortunately, I still have all the police reports. And I went back and put that information together. And the outcome is it became a number one New York Times bestseller and an Academy Award winning movie. Yeah, you know, like you do. <laughs> I, I, know that the, I can hear the um, I can hear the detective in you as you described how you wrote the book with the with the reports and the um all, all, all that's needed to do that job. Cause even as I was watching the movie, I thought there is no way I could, I could do this. And so I, I just want to echo what Derek yeah. said as and, well and, and offer you, thanks. I'm sorry, Katie, you said something else to Ron. I just got to say this. And, and I wish that everybody in America could hear this because uh, you said you could take off your badge and your gun, but you can't take off your blackness. And, and, and I, I so, uh, feel that I, I go I go into the grind in corporate America every day, and and I serve at a very high capacity. Um, and it, it's one thing to have the professional um, persona on, but at the end of the day, the black part you can't take off. And but do, I, I I can't take off, and I wouldn't take off if I could. No, I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm, I'm I'm very proud of uh, my God-given beauty of uh, having ebony skin. Um, I'm very proud of the fact that I have a Latina wife who's sitting in front of me with a smile on her face. And, uh, I take great pride in the fact that some of that irritates people. And, uh, quite frankly, if it pisses them off, even, even the better. Uh, but I I always recognize that I was a black man first and a police officer second. And, uh, basically I had to learn how to blend the two. Wow. Well, Ron, I know you don't like to be called a hero, but <clears throat> it's hard. It's hard to hear you talk and and know your story and not feel no. that. I mean, because uh, yeah, what I love, what I love about what you were saying too is that you just don't care what anybody thinks about you. I can totally get that. I totally get that from everything about what I know about you, and I love that about you. That it's just like you know what? I'm just going to be who I am. I'm going to do what I need to do, 
I don't care if you don't like it. I'm going to say what I have to say and do what I have to do. And I think that's probably what's one of the most endearing things about you and your story is it takes someone like you uh, who with that kind of attitude and with that kind of uh, an ethic who decides I'm just going to do what has to be done. I don't care if it's a risk to myself. I don't care if people don't like it. Um, I'm not, if people tell me I can't do it, I'm going to do it anyway. And it, and honestly, that's probably a, a big, a big spirit of deconstruction and, and what it means to be a heretic that I think a lot of our listeners can resonate with. So thank you so much, Ron. Very honored to speak with you. Thank you for your time. Uh, and man, love what you love you. Love, uh, love your yep. story. And thank you so much for sharing it with us. You thank are you. a blessing. Really my pleasure, folks. Thank you for having me. Oh my goodness. Ron Stallworth, the Black Klansman. I can't even believe we just did that. That was amazing. Ron, thank you so very much. That was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, Mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Very good. Mind-blowing. Yes. Stuff. And as good as it was, we, we, we do have to move on to our topic, but I, I think it's going to be related today. I think it's going to be related and it's going to fit real, real nicely. So we are, we are going to talk about salt and light. What do you guys think? Salt and light. We're, we're in Matthew. We're in Matthew 5. We're continuing on the uh, Sermon on the Mount, and we're going salt and light and city on a hill. You guys mm-hmm. got thoughts? Oh, so I, many have, thoughts. I have one or two. Just one <laughs> or two? That'll be a short episode then. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I, I think that what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, make like Muhammad Ali and kind of rope-a-dope this one. I'm going to lay back on the ropes for a minute and let somebody else come out swinging. And then I'm going to come back with the knockout blow. Oh boy. Look out. All right. Should we duck? Should we <laughs> Bob, let Bobby, us know? We, Give us a warning. Hey, it's like a butterfly or whatever. Float like a butterfly, sting, sting like, like a bee. Sting like a bee. That was it. Yes. Well, so as I was reviewing salt and light and city on the hill, there were a lot of thoughts and a lot of depth to this. You know, we talked last time, how many Beatitudes are there? Are there eight Beatitudes? Are there nine Beatitudes? So I think I came up with the answer. I figured this out for all time, but probably not. Yes, I know, right? But in verse 11, when the Beatitude that says, blessed are you when people revile and persecute you, that one's, we noted that one's different than all the blessed are they, Mm -hmm. but it leads right into the, you are the salt of the earth. And so this was my kind of number one question. My number one question is, who are the salt of the earth? And uh, does this have the power to be abusive? And does it have the power to be empowering? But if the salt, my kind of initial thought, I'll see what you guys think. If the salt of the earth are people who are persecuted and reviled and the children of God, what, what could that mean? And is that, that's not usually how I've heard it interpreted almost universally when I've heard you are the salt of the earth. It seems to be taught. People seem to be talking about farmers, like very just kind of wholesome, good-hearted people. Mm-hmm. And it kind of wonder if we could nuance this a little bit and see who the salt of the earth might be. Curious, yeah. Curious if this is a direction to go in, or if I'm way off base. Well, I, I, I think have... people people use that as like a, a, a way of generating some false piety. You know, in other words, woe is me. I'm I'm being persecuted. I'm being downtrodden. I'm being trampled underfoot, you know, as like salt uh, could be when it's abused. And, and and so I think that that the the salt of the earth, and I'm not getting into my original thing yet, but the salt of the earth are the people who are, I don't know, they're they're just the um 
they're the people that make life tasty. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess the way, maybe I'm just too simplistic. Um, but like when I read, it's really only one verse where Jesus talks about salt, right? He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. So, I mean, just on a very plain surface reading, and assuming there's nothing deeper, more metaphorical going on there. I got something deeper in a second. There might be. I mean, you might, yeah, there may be more going so on here because there's always, there's always the possibility of... <laughs> you know, something going on from the Hebrew culture or some idioms being used that we're not aware of. But, but assuming that there's, that's not what's happening, if just on the plain reading, when he says, you know, you're, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? I, it seems like what he's saying is, look, this is who you are, and you need to be who you are, because if you lose this quality that, uh, of, of who you are, your being, then what's, how, how can we ever restore that again? Like, if you've lost it, if you're no longer who you truly are, then, right, what good is it? And he, he does the same thing with the light. He says, you know, the, you're the light of the world, and, you know, you don't, the city on a hill isn't hidden. You don't put light a lamp and put it under a bowl. But it, what do you do? Instead, you put it on a stand, and it gives it light. So, like, so in other words, light is intended to give light. Salt is intended to be salty. And so I think what his encouragement is is for us to be truly who we are and not to pretend to be something else or to fail to live up to or who we are inside. Um, I mean, for me in general, that's just kind of the gist of what I come away with when I read, uh, you know, Jesus statements here. And, and I like that. I, um, I, I'm shocked that we can take these verses. So I, I shouldn't be shocked. I shouldn't be surprised by anything anymore, but we take these verses and we do sort of like elevate ourselves and think of ourselves as like better than typically in the Christian world. And, but if we look at who are the salty people that he's talking to, it's all the people from the Beatitudes. So right. I don't know how we get on the one hand, oh, we're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. Well, but we're also the meek and we're also the merciful. And we're and so and we're the peacemakers. So there's really there's there should be no room to boast, even if we're the salt of the earth. And mm. I've always been kind of astounded by the fact that that in, in Christianity, we can have this sense of this false sense of piety and act like, you know, our shit doesn't stink, but it's really like, well, that all of these, you know, all of these things that we use to justify that are attached to these other qualities that like, we're supposed to be humble. We're supposed to have a servant's heart and, and that can be abused too. But you know, it just, it, it always strikes me and annoys me. I I don't want to jump off by being annoyed right off the top because this is a this could be a beautiful verse and I'm I'm interested uh, to hear the depth that Katie and Derek you guys want to go with this. Um, well, I'm super curious about I'm curious about Derek's how how Derek will be interpreting this. But when I was doing a little bit of <laughs> when I was <laughs> doing a little bit of research into the Greek, so in the verse and this is the NRSV, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste. This is a very suspect translation, and we, we go back and forth on the best way to translate that. But the Greek word is moranthe, and it means to become foolish or to become insipid. And wow. so this translation of like, has it lost its tastiness is kind of um, maneuvered a little bit because the verse is a little bit obscure. 
And it's interesting to me that it's become such a well-known staple. And a lot of people will say salt of the earth, but they have no idea even where it comes from, that it even comes from the Sermon on the Mount. So what would it be like if we retranslated it and said something like, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become insipid, can it be restored? By the way, that is the way David Bentley Hart translates it. He, Ooh, I didn't exactly. Know. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. I just looked it up and he's, he says, but if the salt should become insipid. Yep. Check yeah, out and the so that, on Katie. <laughs> well, it, it, it makes it less uh, bland to me. I mean, it makes it more salty. It makes the verse yeah. a little <laughs> bit more salty to me. So where, where am I insipid? You know, where have I lost my fire? And so is Jesus talking, as Matt, Matt was saying, you were saying, if I understood you correctly, that you think Jesus is talking here about all the blessed, you know, the people in the Beatitudes. But I wonder if Jesus is talking here about blessed are you when people revile and persecute you. Like if he's talking about the disciples, if he's talking about later, if this is written uh, like in 80s or so CE, then talking to the recipient, you know, the second generation Christians there who are being persecuted. And the, this has total potential to be abused today when people who aren't being persecuted see themselves as persecuted, but then for people who are yes, really yes. experiencing persecution and hardship and You're being reviled. You're making me wear a mask in church. What was that? You're making me wear a mask in church. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> you son <of> a bitch. <laughs> oh, those churches probably shouldn't yeah. be meeting still, but yeah. Exactly. No, I, think, no, I think there's a lot there, Katie. I mean, I think, I, I think you could be right. Uh, I can see what you're saying because he does all the blessed are, blessed are, you know, how blessed are these or how blissful are these that we talked about last time. And then he switches to, you know, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great uh, because they persecuted the prophets before you. And then you are the salt of the earth. So it, it could be he makes a shift to now addressing directly the disciples and sort of speaking about what's coming for them personally, right? This, this persecution that's going to come to them personally uh, afterwards. And so, yeah, maybe in that sense, he's sort of wa- warning them not to lose their saltiness, not to lose, you know, their, their identity as sort of being this light. Uh, is that what you're saying? Cause I, I, yes. think, I think that's, yeah. that's a fair, fair possibility. Well, yeah. And then I'm wondering like, where am I, you know, in, in my personal interaction with the text, I'm like, Ooh, am I in sip? Did I get lukewarm somewhere? You know, it's, it's really easy for me to lose my, um, sort of justice voice in the name of making peace. Mm. Yeah. Right. And I, I know I can't, not out of you three, probably, but from listeners, I can't be the only one. Uh, and so it's the it's also the warning in me to keep my saltiness. Yeah. You know, I was just looking up something here. That word insipid, it means lacking flavor, which is, you know, consistent with the saltiness. But another definition is lacking vigor or interest. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words. Don't become boring. Exactly. Katie, get out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> we, we're going to start our own podcast, Derek. Oh, that's right. That's yeah, here we go. Derek, what should be the name of our new podcast? Let's just have a revolt. Let's go. Hey, you know what? Let's, let's, let's use today's topic. Let's be salt and light. Ooh. And since, since I'm normally colorful with my language, I'll be the salty one. There you go. <laughs> All right, here we go. We're, we're spotting another podcast. <laughs> Yeah, and 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 I would say if it is a warning, I I like the um, I just learned this that there might be something to the fact that uh, Jesus could be alluding to what's coming in seventy A.D. as a warning as well with his light mm. of the world, because in rabbinic Judaism, from what I understand, that was like the light to the world, um, the temple, and the temple was going to fall. So 
there there could be something to the warning part too. I, I'm I'm not sure. I, I you guys know me. I like to remain agnostic and kind of be a little nebulous every, everywhere. So I I'm cool with that translation. I I think it's always good to explore all these different ideas. No, that's fascinating, man. Um, about the the idea that the one of the euphemisms for the temple was the light of the world, and so for them for him to then say to them, "You are the light of the world." in the context of basically you are the temple of God, which is what Paul says later, right? Paul says, you are the temple of God. Living stone, Peter says it, right? You are, we are living stones being built together, right? Into this. Well, Hebrews. It would make sense for Jesus to say that too, because here's the cool thing, right? That this temple that existed in Jesus's time, it wasn't David's temple. It wasn't Solomon's temple. This was something Herod built. Herod. Yeah. You know, I mean, so, so this, this thing was like, you know, it, it was, it was uh, something that was blasphemous, blasphemous that was made uh, uh, sacred, mm-hmm. you know. So, so Jesus here comes and he juxtaposes humanity with this temple, and and says, "Okay, which is the greater? You're the greater. You're the light." I like that. that. Just that that just kind of hit me. I like that. Well, yeah. and Matthew is, in my opinion, written way after the not way after, but maybe ten to fifteen years after the temple fell. And so there's a lot of opportunity for foreshadowing. Yeah. Yes. Right. And so like these early, right. these early readers, these early communities are struggling with that. What does it mean when the house of God falls? Right. Sure. All of a sudden, that's a lot of responsibility. I would much rather have the temple be the light on the hill than me. Yeah. 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 A lot of pressure. Yeah. No. Yeah. Well, de- definitely. It sort of raises the bar. Right. And I think, but that, I think that's everything that's happening in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus, as we're going forward, we're going to, I'm sure, have many times to allude to this. Jesus is constantly raising the bar, right? He's always, he's saying, like he says later on, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God, which is, which sounds like really bad news uh, until you understand in what context he means this, right? But, but, you know, even when he says, you know, you have heard it said, but I say to you, again, he's constantly doing that, where he is sort of raising the bar. He is asking a little bit more of those who would be his disciples, um, and, and, and I think in many, much, uh, many ways, these kind of contexts we're talking about, right? Kind of step up and be the light of the world, be the salt of the earth, uh, be the city on the hill, all of those things. Yeah. And I, and I go back to something that I said before, <clears throat> that basically Jesus was really just showing the ridiculousness of the law and the impossibility of keeping it. it this was, I, I, I think that there was a lot of hyperbole in this, that, that, that basically, uh, just to show people that, listen, you know, you guys are trying to hold on to something that you just absolutely can't do. And and so stop trying to do and and start focusing on the being. That's and, and I, I really I really kind of stick to my guns on. That. I'm, I'm not I'm not saying that I've got it 100 percent right. I'm just saying that that works for me. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know more, Derek. I've been, I've been for like two weeks. I've been just dying to know more. Tell us. Oh, well, you know what? Here's the, this is, you ready for the money shot? Bring it. Here here it comes. Jesus in talking about salt and light, this had nothing to do with anything spiritual. He was giving a physics lesson. Tell us more. I'm listening. When we talk about salt, we're talking about sodium chloride. We're talking about potassium chloride. We're talking about magnesium. These are all elements essential for life. Take away any of these or provide an overabundance of any of them, and the result is death. Mm. So, so here Jesus is talking about 
you are life-giving. You are the representative of he or she who created all life. Now, that's the, that's the first part. The second part is quantum physics. Basically, Jesus is speaking to a change in the quantum field, that something shows up that represents the, the greatness of God, the greatness of creation. You are not just the, the chemistry. See, see, the chemistry represents the physicality of humanity, but then the light, the light is what makes this lump of clay something animate. So now Jesus is saying, here you are the light. What is what is light? He's taking and and again, Jesus is taking basically the it, the the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, is a distillation of the old covenant. And so he's when when he says you are light, he's taking them back to the beginning. In the beginning, God said, "Light be," and there was light. And this light had to exist before humanity could exist because light is spirit. Light is what gives life. Life cannot, as we understand it, cannot exist in darkness. So not only is it physical light that, that gives physical life, but he, there also is actually a spiritual component to this, that this light is, as uh, John wrote, um, in, in Jesus was the light of the light of, uh, in Jesus was light and this light was the life of men. So you are salt, you are light, you are the manifestation of Zoe life in this three-dimensional space. I'm showing you, I'm here to show you who you really are. And I'm going to show this to you with a physics lesson or with a chemistry lesson at your level of understanding. Mm. And the crowd goes wild. <laughs> <laughs> I love, you know, I do, I really like, uh, Derek, the part of bringing in the quantum physics side of it and, and even tying it back to Genesis, right? You know, in the beginning, let there be light. Um, and then, and then Jesus saying at the, really at the beginning of his ministry, you mm -hmm. are the light. Uh, and this idea of like, yeah, what we know about quantum physics, that light is this vibration, right? It's a wave. It's both a particle and a wave. And it's a wave and a particle, exactly, at the same mm -hmm. time in ways we cannot understand how these photons uh, react differently if they're, how, if they're observed or not. Like yep. that, that's really amazing, dude. And I, I have no reason to think that Jesus couldn't have had something very, very similar in mind. Uh, again, now this was not something his audience would have had any clue about. They'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? But, <laughs> but for us, well, who do here's, understand here's the people, more than how People understand salt as a preservative, right? Right. Uh, people understand salt as like a cleaning agent, a cleansing agent. They understood that, then. Yes. you know. So, so when when Jesus is talking about light and uh, or salt, he's he's talking about this thing that that is essential to life, that it that it has a cleansing effect, and then this whole thing about light. This is really important because nothing that we understand as living can exist in the dark. So, so not only are we here to receive light, to reflect light, but he's got a bigger thing that, that in the, in the quantum field, you are light, you are the wave, you are the particle, you are what makes the difference.
I mean, it, it was like when I saw this, I, I was I was rolling around on the floor like an idiot. I mean, it's <laughs> like I'm like, holy fuck, really? This is this is amazing. I mean, but the, the, I mean, it, it actually. I, I really believe that a lot of Jesus's parables, a lot of Jesus's teaching, that it was explaining really high concepts at a level that basically children could understand. And that yeah. that that to me is the beauty of it. So I still I still think it's spiritual though. I mean I don't I don't well there is you a said some at the start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned that because at that start you said it's not spiritual. And I was like, you were talking, I was like, that's spiritual as shit. I know. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's like you you catch yourself in the middle of a you know in the middle of a stream and and you say, wait a minute, okay, I fucked up. It's <laughs> spiritual too. We'll fix that. We'll fix that in post. The well, so Derek, I I love like you know I'm a metaphysical practitioner, right? So yep. I I love your interpretation. I have no I have no issue with the interpretation. I'm not sure I can get there from the text itself, but I but I love your insights about it that sprung from the text. Hey, theology and, is all about ex- exegetical leaps. So I just, yeah, I just, yeah. I mean, it's like you literally, know? literally the leap of faith. And so that part I love, but one, when you were talking, one of the things that occurred to me is you know, in the metaphysical world, one of the things we use to help ground ourselves is salt. Mm. Like it's a very, it's very grounding, you know, when you feel all floaty and you feel um, like you're all in your head, like having salt, um, cr- either on food or, you know, just sprinkling it, like we throw it over our shoulders for, you know, to ward off bad luck, right? It's a very, very grounding agent of the earth. And, you know, what to be salt of the earth as one of the things about this saying that's confusing is that salt doesn't ever lose its tastiness, but you can't, you can't take the taste out of salt. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's weird that, that Jesus says, what if it did? What if it did? Yeah. Because it doesn't. Yeah. And yeah. And so then thinking through that, I'm like, maybe Derek's right on this one. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> he's I, I describing gotta, an impossibility. Yeah. Right. Well, see, here's the thing I want to say in Derek's defense Paul and Jesus use very questionable uh, uh, <laughs> interpretation techniques when they take Old Testament. <laughs> yeah, they do it though. They take Old Testament passages and they, they reinterpret them in ways that there is, that is not at all what the original, uh, you know, text intended. But, uh, you know, it's one of these things where I mean, actually one of my, I think it was Richard Murray who said he, he noticed this in, in seminary, you know, they were taught uh, the correct way to study scripture, but then they would be in their New Testament class and they'd study some things about the way Paul handles scripture. And he, he would say, well, how come I can't do what Paul does? They'd say, yeah, you're right. Paul does everything wrong, mm-hmm. but, and, but Paul can do that and you can't. <laughs> but, but, it's a, but, you know, what Derek is doing is I think exactly what Paul does and even Jesus does quite a bit is to take the parts of the scripture that you want to use and apply it in the way that you want to apply it. And and especially if you know that it's backed up with something we know in science, it's not necessarily wrong uh, if it is it's still communicating something that's that I think is in line with something that Jesus we know things that Jesus did say, uh, you know, completely. I way prefer this exploration of the metaphysics and physics of light as opposed to sort of the light on the hill, the puritanical, you know, yeah. Re- yeah. Uh, interpretation that we've all received and uh, kind of gagged over, but that, that like America is a, is a light on a hill and this contributed to all sorts yeah. of horrific, I know, right. Yeah. It contributed to all sorts Rich. of horrific treatment of the earth. I mean, literally of the earth. 
uh, uh, in North America and this idea of manifest destiny. And so I love reconfiguring that in terms of, you know, we are like the light of yeah. God that is inhabited salt of the earth. Us. Salt of the earth. In other words, you, you give life to the earth, light of the world. You give light to the world. It, it, it's, I don't know. To, it's just one of those things that uh, I, I really believe that um, when I look at Jesus, I, I try to reverse engineer I'm an engineer by profession. So I try to reverse engineer things. And I and I try to take these parts and find out A, how do they work in their in their discrete components? And then B, how would they work if you reconfigured them? You know, what 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 happens if you if if the rocket nozzle points the other way? And and so I, I'm I'm constantly asking those questions and and I reformulate words to to see how they how they look in different configurations. And so that's kind of how I got to where I did. But when I went right now, I'm in a quantum physics kind of frame of mind. And, um, and I'm so really resonating with some of the things that Katie teaches, uh, with, 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 uh, with, with Ricky and, um, uh, you know, basically these metaphysical and, and these metaphysical teachings. Because really, I think that these are the things that Jesus was trying to get to. It wasn't, it, it, you know, it wasn't some super spiritual, ooh, let's, you know, let's uh, assign this infallibility and errancy to the Bible kind of thing. No, it was just like Jesus was saying, okay, here's how things actually work. But, you, you know, you guys are really kind of dense. So <laughs> let me let me break it down to its really simplest parts. And, and I really believe that's what he's doing here. Yeah, and I, w- I want to go back um, to to something earlier when when it was pointed out that salt really doesn't lose its saltiness. That's kind of a misnomer. Yeah, and and it and it reminded me of like in Mark nine we have that hell text at, at the end of at, at the end of Mark nine, um, and it says everyone will be salted, and the salt is good. So really, you can't lose your salt. So to me, it makes me think you guys we we will be on fire right now or literally when you end up in Gehenna you will be on fire and so it's like this kind of um, weird thing like either way uh, we're going to come up to a shift in consciousness in the way we do things it's either by it's either by getting this now or getting it later yeah. and, and we and we can choose we can choose we can choose to be on fire now in the metaphorical way and and, and or we're going to end up in, on fire in, in, a, in a literal way. And, and I don't know if, if that's just kind of exploring. I, I, I don't want to make a parallel necessarily between this and Mark 9. But it's just interesting that, that Jesus mentions salt here and, sa- and then kind of is rhetorical about what happens if salt loses its saltiness. And then later or, or in a different passage about a different thing is talking about everyone being salted by fire. And that's a good thing. And so it's just interesting that the two texts can have a similar theme, but then maybe be talking about different things. It's it's just, it's interesting to me. Well, Saul it- also appears in the Old Testament as part of a lot of covenants. And it's, sure. it seems to be yep. an ingredient in, in sacrifices as well. Yeah, it's sure. also a symbol of wealth. Salt is a symbol of wealth. Like only wealthy covenant. people would have had salt. That's right. Like salt rocks. That makes sense. I haven't thought about it that way. That makes sense. But so one of the things that I'm intent on is also not um, kind of like Derek, not overly spiritualizing things because it has the danger of only then sort of residing 
in our heads. And one of the things Jesus says here is, you know, that you are the salt of the earth. And then um, when it becomes insipid, it's thrown out and trampled underfoot. And it has a real corporeal kind of bodily, tangible element to it. Salt is obviously, you know, very tangible. We can, we can taste it. We can roll it between our fingers. And so salt that was used in the covenant was um, just a few references for, uh, for people who want to get really technical. But in Exodus 30, 34 through 38, it talks about using uh, salt in the grain offering for the covenant. Mm-hmm. It seals the bond between Aaron and all the successions of priests in Numbers 1810. It's associated with um, sealing in kingships. And like through these figures spreads also to all the people. But I, you know, I, the, the body is being really important. It's the, it's what our, our souls, our spirits, our light, it's what inhabits them as well. So I'm also kind of wondering if this saltiness, if this salty element is bringing us back to our, like, what does it mean to be alive on this earth? Yeah. Kind of back. Yeah. Back to our, the, the text from earlier. And there you go quoting scripture again, damn it. Yeah, I thought it was a real. I thought, I thought scripture I was thought a real. It wasn't real. Yeah, but oh well. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I wanted to jump if I could quickly back to what you were saying, um, Matt, when you you quoted the Mark passage, which I love yeah. that. Right, that everyone be salted with fire. Which, by the way, the patristic universalist views kind of took that idea. You know, the, Jesus saying that because um, they took that to mean that well, everyone will pass through the fire and. In other words, that that the fire um, of Gehenna, or the fire of judgment, or whatever, uh, isn't uh, to torture or to destroy, but it was for purification, right? Um, we're forged but, but, through it. Sorry, like we're forged through it. Yeah, exactly. We're purified. Yeah, we're purified by the fire. And, well, you, uh, like, you know, yeah, like, these, like cold. These but, mineral but, salts. These mineral salts are. They still remain. Like if a, if a human body is cremated, hmm. those salts remain. That's that is really, creepy. Isn't that interesting? So that's creepy as hell. Oh my you gosh. might be you might be eating one of your ancestors when you salt uh, put salt on your food. Anyway, hey. no, but I wanted to say this because because I, I think this is you fascinating. Get more earthy than that. Soil and green. <laughs> so so real quick in the in the Mark passage, uh, it repeats what it repeats the passage from uh, the Matthew passage where he says salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? But then he adds. So there's an added thought, though, after that in the Mark passage, where Jesus says uh, right after that, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Mm-hmm. So in that in that case, um, the idea of having salt in yourself, Jesus connects that directly to the way we treat one another, right? The way we love one another, having peace with one another. So I think that's fascinating, too. It, it suggests that maybe there's another element of when, when he's talking about salt the saltiness that we have, again, going back to this, our identity, our core, true identity of being who we really are, being true to who we really are, is touching on that sort of image of God or the image of Christ that's in each of us. I love it that somehow in scripture, we've given ourselves um, not only permission, but um, sort of authority to be really, really salty on the podcast Mm. through the words of Jesus. This is totally confirming everything I ever thought. Fucking A. <laughs> Fucking A indeed. Yeah. Make sure you check out our website, heretichappyhour.com. We have beautiful merch designed by Raphael and friends. We have all the episodes are on there. We have some freebies. 
And uh, yeah, you'll notice that there is an overhaul to the site. It looks a little bit differently. So make sure you go check out heretichappyhour.com. We also have two Facebook groups. Heresy After Hours is for everyone. If you're not on there, get on there because people put amazingly funny things on the site. They are pulling memes and hysterical quotes that they no longer believe and like to poke a little fun at. So come join the fun there. But we also have a group that's just for those who are the patrons through Patreon. And that's Heretic Happy Hour Podcast. All four of us are on there. We'd love to interact with you. And so those who are members of the Patreon site, we have a group just for you. Mm, that's right. And, you know, guys, we're getting near the end of this podcast. And um, and, and you don't want it to end, right? Gosh, if we could just keep going. We want more, right? And if that's you, I invite you to go to the Heretic Happy Hour Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash Heretic Happy Hour. And for as little as $2 a month or more, uh, you, my friends, will unlock just a mountain, gobs, bakoodles, a just uh, more than you can imagine. So much stuff, uh, amazing stuff, extra bonus content, bonus interviews, uh, funny stuff, cool stuff. You got to check it out. And you will also get access to our private group, as Katie mentioned. So head on over to Patreon and become a subscriber and supporter of our podcast. And Keith, man, you had me at bakoodles. Bakoodles. <laughs> Bakoodles. Which that reminds me, if you listen to this podcast and if you enjoy it, and even if you don't, I urge you to go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating. Not four stars, not three stars. And matter of fact, if you give less than three stars, the ghost of William Tecumseh Sherman will come and burn your ass to the ground. <laughs> so make sure you give us a five-star rating. And, and, and if five isn't enough, a bakoodle. <laughs> Give a bakoodle of stars. Maybe, maybe, maybe those low raiders can just come over to our new podcast, Derek, that you and I are doing. Salt and light. Yes. <laughs> Salty I'm going to give that a one-star review. I'm going to tell yeah, you what. I think so. I think Talking all that shit. <laughs> you won't be a guest then. That's just fine. I don't want to be a guest. Everyone does. Oh, that's true. <laughs>